Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There is a ghost ship that sails the waters of the Hudson River, a vessel that has vexed those who have passed along this historic river for as long as any man can remember. The ship is accompanied by terrible wind, rain, and thunder, which seems to have been summoned from the mountains themselves. For the native tribes who lived on these lands, the mountains were home to malevolent spirits, unspeakable things that manipulated the weather to torment mankind. When the Dutch arrived in these parts, making new settlements in New Amsterdam at the mouth of the Hudson River, and further north in Beaverwick, today called Albany, they rankled this unseen evil even further, and it soon manifested in a physical form that seemed to slither from the shadows of Dunderberg Mountain. To unfortunate captains steering their ships through these stormy waters, seeing the mysterious ghost ship and its captain meant certain doom. Washington Irving later wrote of these ship sightings, Quote, the captains of the rivercraft talk of a little bulbous bottomed Dutch goblin in trunk hose and a sugar loafed hat with a speaking trumpet in his hand, which they say keeps about the Dunderberg. To the Dutch, this entity looked Dutch, even dressed Dutch. They called it the Heer of Dunderberg. However, this was a ruse for captains who, thinking the vessel friendly, would follow its calls toward safety through the treacherous, churning waters. Instead, the Heer would lead ships to their doom, shattering ships against the rocks, hurling sailors into the foaming dark waters. The lucky ones were pulled under and drowned. For the unlucky souls, however, their cries for help were met with assistance by horrible winged things with faces too terrible to describe, for if the here looked like a Dutchman, his imps were decidedly more otherworldly. These winged creatures plucked sailors from the waters by their heads and carried them into the black shadows of the mountain forests, the men screaming in terror until they were forever lost within the caves of Dunderberg. The Dutch eventually grew wise to the machinations of the Goblin King, and to curry his favor, no captain would ever dare sail these waters without taking off their caps as they passed Dunderberg Mountain as a show of respect. They would also tie horseshoes to their mast, hoping the imps of the mountain would see this symbol of luck and flee. 
In the end, these methods did protect the Dutch sailors. But what, dear listener, will protect you? The Bowery Boys, episode 397, Ghost Stories of the Hudson River. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we're back. We're back in the Hudson River, that is. This past spring, we visited the Hudson Valley in a three-part miniseries uh, with shows on the Hudson River School of Painting, the Franklin D. Roosevelt Library and Museum, and the Old Croton Aqueduct. And so we thought, why not head back up there to get a little spooked? So, for this year's annual ghost stories of old New York, we're taking the Metro North back up to the haunted Hudson to explore a few stories of folklore and urban legend that are all based in the actual history of the region. And, Tom, here's the thing about the Hudson River and, you know, all the towns and villages along the river— They are actually famously haunted. Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, one of America's most famous and earliest ghost stories is set in the Hudson River Valley in the village of Sleepy Hollow. Of course, I'm talking about the legend of Sleepy Hollow, written by Washington Irving in 1820, that recounts the the plight of schoolteacher Ichabod Crane and his encounter with a terrifying headless horseman. Tom, you, in fact, retold that story Mm -hmm. in our Halloween special from two years ago, Mm -hmm. episode 343, Literary Horrors of New York City. So, listeners, you may want to go revisit that show as a preface to this show, as the spirit of Washington Irving will linger over every delicious, scary detail of this week's podcast. But the Hudson River scares didn't start with Washington Irving, did they? Hmm? No, because this region has been associated with spooky stories that even predate Irving. And he even made some of those older tales famous in his writing. Mm -hmm. In 2009, author Judith Robinson wrote an entire book on why the Hudson River Valley is so haunted. A book called Possessions, the History and Uses of Haunting in the Hudson Valley. Quote, underlying the Hudson Valley's reputation as a place given to hauntedness are hosts of individual hauntings recounted in literary offerings, newspapers, local histories, and folklore. There are ghosts of Indians and Dutchmen, ghosts of Revolutionary War soldiers and spies, ghosts of presidents, slaves, priests, and laborers. There are neighborhood ghosts and family ghosts and ghosts whose identities are unknown. There are haunted cemeteries, houses, mountains, bridges, and factories. There are numerous places like the Haunted Brook in Westchester, which, according to one late 19th century analyst, bore so bad a reputation for spirits that it was carefully avoided after dark by neighboring inhabitants. 
Wow, so many spooks. Greg, we could spend the next decade of Ghost Story podcasts up here. Yeah, we could just do a whole series and just forget about New York City history entirely. Well, in today's show, we will be looking at some instances then of supernatural behavior that uh, have been taken from folklore, from urban legends, and even actual newspaper and magazine articles. Mm-hmm. Don't think I didn't come without <laughs> article printouts, Greg. Yes. But before we get there... Um, We're not alone in today's studio, are we, Greg? No. We have our uh, usual annual assortment of Halloween goodies all over the place. (laughs) Um, This is actually the first time we're not recording in one of our houses, actually. Right, so we're in right. a we're in a fancy We've studio, upgraded, yeah. and of course we have you know cr- uh, little Halloween lights, like pumpkin lights. Are oh, these new? Did you just pick these up? These are some old favorites for my home, but this is the first time they've seen a studio. Oh, I decorate yeah. my home with pumpkins, but of course we have our dear friend Cheryl Crow, wow. who's come to visit again, and and who's been admired by by hundreds on stage at Joe's Pub. Yeah, Cheryl Crow actually has her own own personal following, by the way, and she is somewhat famous in these sort of ghost story circles. So she might st- she might be starting her own Instagram soon. I was going to say, um, as, <laughs> as is, of course, hashtag Liza Spinelli just mm-hmm. next to her. So happy to see our favorite little spider and our little skeleton bat, Bat Damon. Yes. So we're all here. Folks. We are all here. We're all assembled. Tom, where does one even begin, right? I mean, we set up this, like, massive, like, trove of stories in which to choose from. There are so many spooky possibilities along the Hudson River. Well, you know, some people are drawn not only to visiting a spooky or haunted locale, but actually welcome the opportunity to live in one. Are you taking us to an actual haunted house on the Hudson? Indeed, a house filled with so many spooks that had appeared to so many people that it became national news in the 1970s. But only then did the trouble begin. The name of my story is Owners Divest After Readers Digest. Excuse me. Did you just try to scare me by saying Readers Digest? That takes me back. <laughs> not not scary? No, like the opposite of scary. I'm just, you know, thinking of like my parents' coffee table, <laughs> a, a stack of like withered old Reader's Digest tied together in twine. Maybe a Reader's Digest condensed book. Oh, yes. Next yes. to it. So uh, not scary. Okay. How about the name of my story is Buyer Beware? How about Boo Diligence? <laughs> Okay, uh, better. My story takes us to the lovely town of Nyack, New York, a, a cool, artistically-minded town today, situated about 15 miles north of the city on the west bank of the Hudson, just across from Terrytown. Today, those two cities are pretty much connected by the Governor Mario Cuomo Bridge. I'm sorry, I can't even say that. <laughs> by the Tappan Zee Bridge. Yes, indeed. Today, the town has a population of just under 7,000 residents and a handful of ghosts. (gasps) The town's history goes way back. Native Americans fished there along the the riverbanks, while European settlers arrived in the 1670s and established farms. 
The village of Nyack was incorporated in 1872, but but already the town was known as a center of shipbuilding, along with shoe manufacturing and quarrying. Sounds like actually kind of a busy place during the old Gilded Age here, kind of an industrial hub. Yeah, it was. So it makes sense then that Nyack's wealthiest residents built some very fine homes in the late 19th century, including the lovely and grand three-story Victorian home located at one Laveda Place, about nine blocks north of Main Street, a home that faces the Hudson River with breathtaking views from its wraparound front porch and, and from most of its rooms, out to the mighty Hudson. When was it constructed? In 1890. And it's large. I mean, it's got eight bedrooms and four and a half baths, along with a dining room, parlor, grand staircase, stained glass windows, all the Victorian trappings that you'd hope for. A local family lived in the home through the mid-1960s, but then it sat around for about seven years, unoccupied, abandoned, and, and later described as bedraggled. It was then purchased by the Ackley family, Helen and her husband George, who moved in with her four children in 1967. For Helen, it was a romantic dream house. So so she was a bit surprised when, soon after moving in, neighborhood children stopped their game of baseball to tell her that some of them were afraid of her house, adding, Do you know that you bought a haunted house? As soon as they bought the place, George started working at his job in in Manhattan, commuting back and forth, while Helen oversaw work on the house, and the children stayed behind on their farm in Maryland. One day, a plumber, working alone upstairs, told Helen, I keep hearing footsteps on the stairs and and walking around overhead. I, I must have run up and down those steps six times the other day, and I couldn't find anybody. He wanted to leave, but he didn't want to leave her alone in the house. And he was a grown, tall, seemingly fearless man. Later that night, after Helen told her husband George about this, he confessed that he, too, would uh, rather sleep with the hallway light on. And he, quote, didn't want to discuss it. She laughed it off, wondering why all these men around her were seemingly spooked by this house. But not her. And even Helen had to admit that she heard them. Nightly. Well, was that all? I mean, maybe something could have explained this. Maybe the house was just settling. Isn't that what they always say? Oh, sure, yeah. And the French doors that would suddenly swing open. Well, you know, that could also probably have been explained. And maybe it happened to be really windy. Maybe they were supposed to swing open. Maybe they're automated. (laughs) They were French. (laughs) And the cord from the dining room light, you know, that suddenly started swinging over them and then stopped in midair above their heads. Maybe that had some sort of explanation, too. Or maybe the house had actual spirits. In May 1977, Reader's Digest published a nonfiction article called our haunted house on the Hudson, that Helen had written about her paranormal experiences living in her home. Greg, I have a copy of it right here. You can look it up online. She documented these experiences that I just mentioned, but then recounted something else that happened to her in those early years. 
Her husband was traveling for work that winter, and she'd gotten up in the middle of the night and was pacing about the house with the lights off. She stood there looking out the dining room window, off to the silent Hudson River, twinkling with the lights of the Tappan Zee Bridge. As she stood there, she wrote, quote, A chill engulfed my left side. Someone was standing beside me, very close beside me. Every hair on my neck and scalp stirred as I slowly turned my head. Nobody stood there, but an entity certainly did occupy that space. It's beautiful on the river, isn't it? I asked aloud. As I spoke, my hair eased back into place, and I felt no threat in the presence beside me. We stood looking out the window for a few more minutes. Then I turned to leave. My invisible companion turned with me and walked beside me across the room. I hesitated at the door. So did the other. Thank you for sharing the view with me. I'm going to bed now. Good night. I walked alone down the hall to my bedroom, quivering, and closed the door behind me. This is definitely creepy, but how do we know that Helen wasn't just uh, a sensitive sort of person? Well, reports of disturbances started coming in from others, too. Her 15-year-old daughter complained that every morning her bed would start violently shaking at the same time, and it would keep shaking until she actually got out of bed. Well, on the plus side, that is one way to get a teenager out of bed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was certainly annoying to her daughter, Cynthia, because it was Christmas break after all. So, according to Helen, Cynthia simply explained to the spirits that she'd like to sleep in. And so the spirits left her alone for the rest of the vacation. Well, I guess you can say that at least the ghost was considerate of their (laughs) feelings and requests. Very emotionally available. (laughs) But the ghost or ghosts didn't stay invisible. Helen wrote about an experience that she had when she was home alone, giving the living room a new coat of paint. She stood on an eight-foot ladder, ready to paint, when she suddenly got that feeling again that she wasn't alone in the room. So she decided to address the spirit directly. I hope you like the color. I hope you're pleased with what we're doing to the house. It certainly must have been lovely when it was first built. She then felt a presence even more intensely. Even as she kept painting, she turned to look over her shoulder. She wrote, He sat there in midair, smiling at me from in front of the cold fireplace. Hands clasped around his crossed knees, he was nodding and rocking. He faded slowly, still smiling, and he was gone. He seemed to approve of the work that she was doing on the house. Later, Helen described his appearance in more detail. He was the most cheerful and solid little person I've ever seen. A cap of white hair framed his round, apple-cheeked face. And there were piercing blue eyes under thick white eyebrows. His light blue suit was immaculate. The cuffs of the short, unbuttoned jacket turned back over ruffles at his wrists. And she goes on to describe his ruffles and breeches and and white hose and shiny black buckled shoes. 
do you think this creature here was responsible for like shaking the daughter's bed? That seems unlikely because the daughter swore that she'd seen a thin hooded figure, which she thought was a woman. But there were more. A few years later in 1974, Helen's cousin Alfred, his wife Ingrid, and their family came for a visit, and they themselves were visited from this expanding cast of ghosts. In their case, Ingrid awoke in the middle of the night, feeling a bit uneasy, and looked toward the doorway and saw a man in a white powdered wig wearing a long coat from the Revolutionary War period. Ingrid watched as the man walked over and sat at the foot of her bed, then opened an invisible book in the air from which light shone out onto him as he turned each invisible page from the book. He then closed the book, stood up, and disappeared. It does sound like Helen, who's writing this article for Reader's Digest, it sounds like she is being calm and even level-headed about all of this. She was, right? And it's it's not like the hauntings went away. I mean, her son was also continuously shaken awake in the morning. George, her husband, saw a moccasin-clad visitor dart behind a hallway door. But I think it's important to note that these ghosts were never mean. They weren't scary. In fact, the ghosts even left them small presents, including a small baby ring that appeared at the same time as the birth of their first grandchild. On a certain level, they're actually pretty good house guests. (laughs) They're at least rather considerate. But Helen agreed. She called them gracious and thoughtful. She closed her article by musing that, quote, if the time comes for us to move again, is there any way we can take our otherworldly friends with us? Well, 12 years later, in 1989, Helen would find out. She decided to sell the house and listed it for $800,000. A couple named Jeffrey and Patricia Stambovsky fell in love with the house and, and entered into a contract to buy it, putting down a big down payment. The only problem is that Helen never officially disclosed that the property was, well, you know, haunted. Well, is this something that you need to disclose? Is there like a question on a contract about spirits residing? (laughs) Is there a clause in the contract about spirits? Just next to the part about lead paint or like buried (laughs) oil tanks? No. No, there's nothing about ghosts. I didn't think so. And Helen, you know, claimed to have discussed it with the buyers, Jeffrey and Patricia, before sealing the deal. But they would later claim that, no, in fact, they had found out about the hauntings later from a local contractor they'd hired. So then were these new owners afraid of living there? I don't think it's that. Jeffrey was a Wall Street guy. Uh, He understood markets, and he also understood, you know, that a rumor or legend about ghosts clinging to a house could spell trouble for, you know, the value of his new asset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so he believed that something like this should have been disclosed formally by the seller. Then having put down his down payment, they pulled out of this deal and they filed a suit against Helen for misrepresentation and non-disclosure of the fact that her house was haunted. And we're getting into some ridiculous territory (laughs) now. And actually, the court agreed with you. Mm. They ruled that New York State basically operates under a buyer beware system, right? So it's the buyer's responsibility to 
unearth, if you will, these spooky tales, and and they could have found them by just looking it up in Reader's Digest. <laughs> well, that's probably easier today than it was in the late 1980s, obviously. That's true. But even then, there were ways. Mm-hmm. Lexus Nexus. <laughs> On your Texas Instruments computer. Vic-20. Yeah. But then the Stambovskis appealed the case to the New York State Supreme Court, who actually ruled in their favor that buyer beware policy doesn't apply here, the court wrote, because the dispute wasn't over something physically wrong with the property. As Hadley Mendelssohn wrote in a July 2022 article about the case in House Beautiful magazine, Things like a crime or a reputation based on past occurrences in a location can devalue the market value of the said stigmatized property and thus should be disclosed by the seller. Additionally, by openly promoting the folklore to the press and the community, Helen could not deny or change the folklore under oath. Specifically, the court wrote, having reported the ghost's presence in both a national publication and the local press, the defendant cannot deny their existence, and as a matter of law, the house is haunted. Yep, really happened. Look it up. Stambovsky v. Ackley, 1991. Now, this would ultimately lead in the 1990s to the passage of new, quote, stigmatized property laws, which required that sellers only divulge physical defects of properties. And that would mean that, once again, buyers would be required to dig around for anything sordid or otherworldly in the property's past. But as for the house that we are talking about, was it ever sold? Oh, yeah, several times including to some notable Nyackers, including filmmaker Adam Brooks, who bought it in the 1990s, singer Ingrid Michaelson, then lived there for many years until 2015, when she sold it to musician Mattis Yahoo. Mattis Yahoo lived in the haunted house? Yes. (laughs) With the fabulous views of the Hudson, (laughs) who then he sold it again in 2019, and it sold again last year in 2021. And none of these subsequent owners, including Mattis Yahoo, would ever report feeling or witnessing anything other than this stunning view out over the Hudson. Wow. I mean, you come for the ghost stories and you leave with lessons in property law. (laughs) All in a day's work, Greg. Well, if that didn't completely creep you out... We'll keep trying. Um, We've got several more terrifying tales from the Hudson River Valley right after this. After listening to this week's Bowery Boys episode, we encourage you to check out the latest episode of For the Ages, the new podcast from the New York Historical Society. Host David M. Rubenstein chats with America's most influential historians and creative thinkers in engaging conversations about the people who have shaped the American story. Latest episodes include conversations with Alan C. Guelzo, discussing his new biography on Robert E. Lee. Foreign policy expert Richard Haas explaining what the Council of Foreign Relations does and what the challenges are throughout the world. 
And you'll also find a wide-ranging conversation with historian Eric Foner, an author we love on this show. David Rubenstein discusses Foner's work on American icons such as Thomas Paine, Abraham Lincoln, and his substantial scholarship on the Civil War, slavery, and 19th century America. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, Tom, for our next story, we are going to one of the most famous landmarks along the Hudson River, a place unmistakable if you're riding the train north from New York City. Dare I say, it may actually be the second most spooky place along the Hudson River. Uh, Second, I assume, to Sleepy Hollow? Uh, Yes, uh, which is further south. It's not as old as the land of Washington Irving, but Irving himself would have been fascinated by this place. I'm referring to the ruins of an old castle, which sits on a small island near Beacon, New York. Something you might expect to see in an old Arthurian legend, rising out of the mist, Ruins that are all alone on an island, totally overgrown and abandoned, somehow both apocalyptic looking and yet also very ancient. A castle and an island with dark secrets. For the name of this story, Tom, is Who's Living in Bannerman Castle? (laughs) 
Yes, Greg, we're finally visiting Bannerman Castle. <laughs> I can hear cheers erupting. Yes, I mean, it is one of the stranger tourist attractions that the Hudson River Valley offers today, right? It, it, it almost mm-hmm. seems too good to be true. Yes. Mm-hmm. It seems like the backdrop to a horror movie or a gothic romance. Mm-hmm. Pick your description, right? I mean, it fits so many unusual things. A 1968 New York Daily News article described it this way, quote, The island and its turreted structures rise out of the mist like a nightmare fantasy. The windows stare out empty at observers on the shore, while flights of pigeons make eerie circles from the towers. Things seem to lurk behind the jagged teeth of the battlements, and a heavy silence hangs over everything. But the roots of this mysterious story start with the island itself, right? Yes, a place called Polypel Island, which has had haunted vibes almost from the first moment humans set their eyes upon this place. And a place, as you will see, directly connected to those devilish creatures which we mentioned at the very start of our show. Ah, by which you mean the goblins. <laughs> yes, we're, the goblins. We're going to get to the goblins. The goblins of Dunderberg Mountain. Okay, first of all, let's... Dunderberg. That is actually Dutch for Thunder Mountain, okay? I think a lot of our listeners might be familiar with the mountain right next to it named Bear Mountain. It's a very popular destination for hiking, and it's named for its shape, not that there are a lot of bears on it. And actually, across the river from Polypel Island, you'll find another mountain named Storm King. Mm -hmm. Now, that certainly sounds like a place that's named after a legendary goblin king, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, But in fact, most historians conclude that the name was coined in the 19th century, traced to the author Nathaniel Parker Willis, who observed that inclement weather could be seen atop its peak and that such observances could predict the weather in the rest of the valley later. So as Willis wrote, quote, he, the mountain, seems the monarch. Should not Storm King then be his proper name? Okay, so people are probably familiar with the Storm King Art Center, Mm -hmm. a a fabulous open-air art gallery that features great works of large-scale art. And and which takes its name from the mountain. So do these old Dutch legends pertain to this mountain as well? Um, Yes, they do, actually. Dutch sailors believed that ships were not safe from the wrath of this evil presence until they passed Dunderberg Mountain, sailing further north than beyond the shadow of Storm King. Or more specifically, they believe that once you passed Polypel Island, over here on the east shore, where the river actually opens wider, you and your shipmates were finally in the clear. As these legends, these dark stories, became better known, newly employed sailors were sometimes forced to spend the night on Polypel Island, rain or shine, as a sort of initiation. More suspicious crews believed that if you could survive one night here, then the minions of the Goblin King and the hellish imps which lived in the trees and the caves along the Hudson River, well, then they had no use for you and you would be safe. 
and many a terrible night was spent on the island. A young wayward sailor, unable to sleep, looking out into the blackness, hoping, just hoping, that they would make it to the morning. And by all accounts, most did make it to see the morning sunrise. Man, I think if I was one of those sailors, I would consider a career pivot <laughs> at this point. So, so basically, this is a this is a haunted island, or at the very least, a very very cursed island. Mm-hmm. Not for you know day trips and picnics. So, so then, how did this castle get erected here? Well, I mean, there had been many plans to build something on Polypel Island over the decades, including a military prison after the Revolutionary War. At one point in, in the year 1870, an old barge was towed here and then, believe it or not, turned into a temporary hotel. Oh, I think I've seen that on Airbnb. <laughs> oh, more like Scarebnb, do you mean? <laughs> but for the most part, nothing permanent came to this island as though something was discouraging anything from ever being built until the year 1900 when the island was purchased by a man named Francis Bannerman. Now, Bannerman was born in Scotland in 1851, immigrated with his family to the city of Brooklyn when he was just a little boy. His father, here in Brooklyn, excelled in a a rather curious occupation. He sold surplus military material from the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Surplus military material. So, like, he ran an army surplus store? Yeah, more or less. According to author Tom Johnson, it is believed that this was the first army-navy store in the country. Wow. So, Francis here also got into this business in 1872 with a shop of his own on Atlantic Avenue next to the thriving Brooklyn waterfront. And then over the years, Bannerman expanded, opening more shops. He then moved to Manhattan and even produced a catalog for international sales. I looked through one of these catalogs. He sold flags, uniforms, musical instruments, military-grade outerwear, sleeping bags, not to mention rifles, pistols, as well as vintage bombshells, swords, knives, maces, shields, (laughs) and even body armor. (laughs) So just your everyday home decor. Sure. Um, But a perfect candidate to purchase a haunted island. Oh, I think so. Because by the year 1900, he was very successful, and his warehouses in Brooklyn had grown quite full. And believe it or not, his neighbors were not really keen on living next to, like, huge warehouses full of explosives. Right. Right. Vintage bombshells. (laughs) Yes, yes. So he needed a somewhat remote location. And so then Bannerman bought this island for $600 and a $1,000 mortgage. And in the following years, began construction on a new arsenal and superintendent's house. But of course, this wasn't an ordinary building project. I mean, this looked like a Scottish castle. And Bannerman's arsenal even included a drawbridge, a portcullis, and decorative cannons. But unlike those other city arsenals, of course, Bannerman's was isolated and in the middle of a busy river. 
And the arsenal is built right up to the shoreline, which is pretty interesting. It's almost as though it were emerging from the river itself. And it's also unique in another way, for a second, smaller castle-like structure was built on the island for the family to live in. Bannerman, his wife, and his children did live here during the summer months. It really was as if Bannerman had created his very own little kingdom here, albeit one with thousands of pounds of deadly explosives. But were they afraid of having all of these explosives nearby? Well, maybe we would. But, you know, Bannerman was very skilled at this time in safely storing explosives. This was the family business. So they were so comfortable here that his wife, Helen, even cultivated a very beautiful garden on the island. And they were not conspicuous with this place, right? I mean, it was in the Hudson River. Everyone who sailed by saw this place. Along the side of the arsenal, in massive lettering, were the words Bannerman Island Arsenal. Which all sounds very lovely. It also sounds very curious and conspicuous. Mm -hmm. I mean, right here on the Hudson River, especially as the U.S. entered World War I in 1917. And it was at this time, actually, that a dark cloud began hovering over this lonely little island. Despite Bannerman's enthusiastic support for the Allied powers during the war, the U.S. government questioned what looked to be a suspiciously well-armed fortress and eventually searched the island and even arrested one employee, partially due to the fact that machine guns, decorative machine guns, of course, had been mounted to the top of the tower. Now, Bannerman himself would be exonerated. And through all of this, he continued to build out the castle. There was always some new aspect being constructed right up to the moment of his sudden death on November 26th, 1918. It was almost as though the force of his own personality was keeping the demons at bay. But with Mr. Bannerman gone, unfortunate things did begin to happen. Less than two years later, on August 15th, 1920, 200 pounds of explosives suddenly detonated, severely damaging the arsenal, blowing windows and doors off their hinges. In fact, a corner of the island was even blown into the river. Was there any indication as to what detonated these explosives? Well, to quote from a Pennsylvania newspaper, the cause of the explosion has not been determined, but residents of the neighborhood attributed it to river pirates. But I think we know that there were no river pirates. Even though the Army-Navy business was passed on to the Bannerman children, it would never be the same. And over the decades, the island was slowly abandoned. What had been a thriving place of business for over two dozen employees at any given time now had almost none, and the family returned for only occasional visits. Soon the walls gave way to the island's natural growth, while plants and vines soon enfolded the medieval decoration, the abandoned cannonades. The lights were soon permanently dimmed on the island, and ships passing in the night could only make out the jagged outline of a diminished, crumbling structure. Something which looked 
out of place. Commuters taking the train to and from New York now saw only a haunted relic overtaken by nature. People began referring to it as a castle, and it became the subject of much quandary. There was something off about this place, most would say, as it passed quickly out of view of their train car window. In the early morning hours of August 8th, 1969, a massive blaze swept through all that remained of Bannerman's arsenal. Flames leapt 100 feet in the air within the old castle, and the sound of crumbling walls and cracking ceilings echoed across the river for miles, the billowing black smoke darkening the sky as night faded into the dawn. The firemen from nearby Beacon could only watch from shore as the entire island was engulfed in flame. Sparks dispersed like fireflies onto the near shore, endangering a few small buildings. There were also small explosions within this decrepit site, unsettling, sudden explosions as remnants of its explosive inventory ignited. But this does not explain what caused the fire. There were reports that a boat was seen on the far side of the island, but nobody could say for sure. If so, it would have come from slightly downstream from the foot of Storm King Mountain. The ruins had always been a bit of a curious draw for the adventurous, and even before the blaze, people risked their lives to reach the island and explore the mysterious castle. A few weeks after the catastrophic blaze, Three young men unwisely decided to swim to the island and have a go at investigating the ruins. But as they swam towards the island, the water became heavier, the current more violent. Only one of them escaped. The bodies of the other two were discovered the following day. And ever since, the ruins of Bannerman Castle have been left alone. Plans to redevelop Palapella Island into a recreational park quickly fell away, and since then there has been no real effort to rebuild the structures. And so the castle-like turrets and fortified walls have been allowed to fall into ruin to inspire the imagination, resembling a sunken kingdom or a medieval fantasy, or simply a cursed place which should never have been built in the first place. And so the castle ruins still sit on the island to to this day and quite visible to anybody who travels along the Hudson River. Um, But can you can you visit it today? Why, yes, you can. Uh, Thanks to the Bannerman Castle Trust, which actually formed in Brooklyn in the 1990s. Thanks to the trust, the ruins have been stabilized and safeguarded enough so that small tours can now come and visit the island. I headed out to Bannerman Castle a couple weeks ago on a perfectly overcast afternoon. Tours leave from the dock over in Beacon, New York. You're in great hands, both in the boat, which ferries you over to the island, and on the island itself, where very knowledgeable tour guides will lead you around the place. Be sure to wear comfortable shoes and bring a little jacket. 
It really is, though, a wonderful once-in-a-lifetime experience, especially if you are, like me, an urbanite who just happens to love romantic ruins. In fact, the Trust has done so much important work out here that they they now offer movie nights, oh. uh, kayak tours, all sorts of surprising activities. So for more information, visit bannermancastle.org. Well, Greg, we still have two more tales, haunted tales of the Hudson River Valley, to recount. And I have a feeling that those meddlesome goblins might also return. Mm-hmm. We'll have more frights right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, we're back. Greg, I think that one of Sheryl Crow's googly eyes just fell off. Oh, my gosh. These stories are so frightening that literally one of her eyes popped, popped off. out of her skull. <laughs> Not thrilled oh. because her ears are still intact. So she will be listening as we explore two more stories, Tom. Where are we going? Where are we flying to next? Well, I thought that I would take us up to Greene County, about 135 miles north of the city on the western banks of the Hudson. We're, in fact, going just north of Catskill, New York, Greg, not not far from the home of Thomas Cole. I love this area. You know, I actually stayed in Catskill for several days, you know, after we recorded that show on Thomas Cole and the Hudson River Painters. So love the place. Mm -hmm. Great little cidery, lovely little downtown. I was there to relax and soak up the local atmosphere. Well, I don't know how relaxed you would have felt had you just headed 10 miles northwest of Catskill to the tiny hamlet of Carrow where an ill-tempered man named Ralph Sutherland spent most of the 18th century living out a most unusual court-imposed sentence for a hideous crime. The name of my story is The 99-Year March to the Gallows. In their 1841 book, Historical Collections of the State of New York, 
authors Henry Howe and John Warner Barber recounted the local histories of towns and buildings and, and personalities in every township in the state of New York. It really makes for a fascinating read because it's a history book that is now more than 180 years old. It's like a historical history book. Very meta. <laughs> Very meta. Yeah, there are many profiles of Dutch-born farmers, you know, from generations past. On page 187, the authors have been exploring the Catskill Mountains. They're, they're describing the vast natural beauty that they've been encountering for readers who had never seen it. And, you know, then they, they continue down into Green County through farmland to this tiny town called Caro, which had only been settled by European-American settlers in the 1770s and only became a town in 1803. And the story that they tell then takes place actually in the 1700s, so predating the town when farming families just own huge tracts of land up here. They write in 1841, quote, Before reaching Cairo, an ancient and spacious stone house was pointed out to us, bearing the date of 1705 in large iron figures. This venerable mansion stands in the midst of an extensive farm of about 1,000 acres, well-cultivated and presenting a scene which, for a single farm, is hardly anywhere to be equaled for the rich, picturesque, and beautiful. It sounds captivating. Yeah, and the author then goes into some rich horticultural detail, which I'll jump over <laughs> for today's show. But, but throughout nearly all of the 18th century, this property belonged to one man named Ralph Sutherland, who was apparently ill-tempered and could be quite violent. Now, of course, during the 1700s, slavery still existed in New York State and around the country, obviously, but it was still legal in New York State and also indentured servitude. And this story involves a young woman who had been his servant. And do we know her name? No, although later accounts of the story mention that she had been born in Scotland and, and that Sutherland had paid for her passage over and that she had agreed to stay working for him on his large farm until that cost was repaid to him. Apparently in the 1730s, when our story takes place, Sutherland, remember, wasn't easy to work for. And one day, she ran off, away from his stone home, breaking free. Quickly noticing her absence, Sutherland mounted his horse and raced after her. He soon tracked her down and apprehended her and then tied her to a rope and unwisely attached it to his horse's tail to lead her home. As the author Charles Stansfield wrote in his book Haunted Hudson Valley, quote, he later admitted that he tied the girl's wrist to the horse's tail and set off toward his house at a slow gallop, never intending to kill her, but only to drag her a short distance as punishment. At some point, his plan went awry and the horse began racing at an inhuman speed, unquote. Probably the horse became spooked and, and it bolted, with the poor girl's body dragging alongside it. The authors of the 1841 book write that the poor girl was dashed to pieces against some rocks and stones. So what happened to Sutherland then? I 
I hope he was held accountable for this. He was, yes. He was arrested and tried and convicted of murder. But he was wealthy and uh, well-connected. He had powerful friends and through those connections received a, a most curious sentencing. He would be hanged for this crime when he turned 99 years old. What? But he was young at this time. Like, at the time of the crime, he was young. Yeah, he was only 24. Hmm. And he would also have to present himself once a year in court. And according to an 1869 book, The Catskill Mountains and the Region Around, he would, quote, always wear a cord around his neck as a constant memento of his crime and its punishment. Like a noose. So, in other words, he had to wear a noose. Yes, as a constant reminder. And apparently, he was convinced of his own guilt, and he wore it at all times in public. Locals remembered seeing this small silken cord around his neck even as he retired and and lived an otherwise peaceful life here in his stone house. But peace was hard to find for Sutherland, for, for even as he grew older... Odd sightings and sounds had been, had been reported along the road near his home. Late at night, reported the 1869 book, quote, Sad sighs and lamentations were borne along by the night winds. A white cow, which was a favorite with a murdered maid, would stand and sadly moan. And low among the rocks, a wild-looking shaggy white dog that had known and was attached to her, would stand howling and pointing toward the house where the lonely criminal lived and would then disappear as one approached him. But these ghostly animals weren't alone. The author continues, quote, A white horse of gigantic size with fiery eyeballs and distended nostrils was often seen at night rushing past the fatal spot, dragging a female with tattered clothes behind him, shrieking aloud for help. And at other times, the ghostly horse was seen dragging a skeleton, a skeleton that let out cries and howls. And these terrible hauntings were happening while Mr. Sutherland was still alive? Yes. He was getting quite old, but many speculated that he could not leave this earth until he had reached 99 and could finally face justice. The authors of the 1841 book wrote, quote, At length the time approached. Ninety. Ninety-five. Ninety-eight years had rolled away since his birth. The ninety-ninth came on, and yet he lived. Greg, he had made it to his 99th birthday. And so did they actually execute him then at this point? You know, a 99-year-old man? Well, so much had happened, right? The the country had, had been through a revolution. Generations had come and gone, and Sutherland himself had outlived his own judges and prosecutors. His odd sentence had become almost a legend. And so they let the old man live. And Ralph Sutherland died not long after his 100th birthday, peacefully in bed, a silken cord tied loosely around his neck.
Well, for our final story today, we're going to one of my favorite places in all the Hudson River Valley. Now, I love so many towns along the Hudson, and I hate to, like, play favorites, but I have much affection for our final destination, Kingston, New York. Ah, and Kingston is located on the western side of the Hudson River, about 30 miles south of Cairo, the the spooky village that I, I just talked about. What is it that draws you to Kingston, Greg? It has such a rich history with a perfect mix of fascinating landmarks in a few historic districts in the town and a great little downtown with uh, quirky restaurants and a couple great bookstores. I want to give a shout out to Rough Draft Bar and Books. In terms of historical tales, it's got a little something for everyone, including instances of the supernatural. For the name of this story is The Exorcism That Went Wrong. Well, before we dive into the darkness, uh, Greg, can you give us a little history of Kingston? Oh, yes. the This land, you know, of course, it dates way back to the Asopus tribe of the Lenape people, who, you know, generally lived throughout this whole Catskill region. By 1661, the Dutch settlement of Viltvik was chartered, the third Dutch settlement after New Amsterdam and Beavervik, which later became Albany. Then, when the British swept in here several years later, they renamed the village Kingston. I love it when you get your Dutch on, Craig. (laughs) And Kingston then played a very significant role in the Revolutionary War. Yeah, I would call this place a major Revolutionary War landmark. As framers were working on forming a national government down in Philadelphia, meanwhile, a New York state government was also being developed by this time. And in 1777, it was decided that Kingston would be the very first state capital. Oh. And it was here in that year, led by the venerable John Jay, that the state constitution was finally completed. Now, today you can visit the site where the Constitution was completed, called the Senate House State Historic Site in the old Stockade District of Kingston. Okay, so then a few months later after that, the first New York State governor was sworn in here at Kingston, a man hopefully many of you are familiar with, George Clinton. Really a founding father in his own right and a future vice president Mm -hmm. of the United States under Thomas Jefferson after Aaron Burr fled the scene. (laughs) And of course, George Clinton was the uncle of DeWitt Clinton, who also became a governor of New York, oversaw the construction of the Erie Canal. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a powerful force in the state. One of the most powerful, yes. Now, I want to focus on one building in particular here, near the Senate House site, and that's the Old Dutch Church, otherwise known as the First Reformed Protestant Dutch Church of Kingston. The original congregation was formed during the period of Dutch settlement, of course, and has always been on the present site, which is at the corner of Wall and Main Streets. In the churchyard, you'll find burials which date back to the 17th century. And you will, of course, find the final resting place of George Clinton. So does the present church structure date back to the Dutch years as well? 
No, actually, almost nothing in town does. So after the signing of the New York Constitution in 1777, Kingston had a huge target placed on its back, you know, being the first capital. So in October of that year, the British came and burned the entire town to the ground, including the church. Everything was rebuilt after the war. And the present church structure that sits here dates back to the year 1852. However, the story that I will tell today involves an earlier incarnation of the church, which sat on this very spot. And believe it or not, this story again involves the Goblin of Dunderberg Mountain. That goblin just keeps coming back. It's like Freddy Krueger in a sequel to a horror film. Yes, a nightmare on Main Street. Yeah, this this story has greater implications for the tapestry of urban legends in the region here. But it may explain why there are still sightings today of creatures within the mountains, but why this hobgoblin himself, the, the so-named Goblin King, why he may have stopped tormenting those upon the Hudson River. This tale takes place sometime in the mid-18th century, in the colonial period, an active time when a number of shipping vessels sailed up the river from New York to Albany. On one particular voyage on a cold, dark evening was a ship with several passengers, including a clergyman from the aforementioned Dutch church in Kingston, along with his wife, and several parishioners making their way home from New York. As the ship sailed up the river through the Tappan Zee, where the river naturally widens, and then into a narrow passage with Dunderberg Mountain rising to the west, cloaked in total darkness on either side of the river, it was at this exact moment that it began to rain And by the time the ship turned into a narrow bend near a settlement called Peekskill, there began a terrible bout of thunder and lightning. The ship rocked violently, almost too violently. The passengers began screaming, for it seemed the ship would surely capsize. But while it was a terrible storm, this heaving, this tremendous rocking seemed to come from another source. Suddenly, a sailor pointed to the foremast near the bow. Holy Lord, preserve us. It is he. Other members of the crew pulled the clergyman from the hold of the ship and beckoned him to approach the bow. You must save us, Father, the sailors cried. You must save us from him. The clergyman surged forward, holding on to one mast, then the next, to get a closer look. For atop the foremast, illuminated by streaks of red and white lightning emanating from the mountaintop, was a creature, the same entity spoken about by Dutch sailors of yore, but now revealed in his true form, the hobgoblin with a disturbingly humanoid shape, yet with leathery wings and monstrous claws, and atop its head, sat a large-brimmed sugarloaf hat in mockery of the old Dutch style. The beast rocked the ship back and forth with seeming ease, intent on plunging the ship and all on board 
against the jagged rocks. The clergyman needed to think fast. He took his crucifix, held it high in the air, and began to improvise an exorcism. It's scripture and incantations known only to him. He shouted these words into the wind up to the monster on the foremast, hoping to banish the goblin from their sight. Yet, as we know now, his words had a slightly different effect. Regardless, after several minutes, the creature began crying out in pain, jackal-like shrieks against the crashing thunder, until finally the beast let loose and took to the sky, hurling back into the Black Mountain. The ship stopped rocking, and almost immediately, the thunder and lightning faded. And by the time the vessel passed Polypel Island to the east, the storm had stopped entirely. The clergyman had sent the hobgoblin back to hell, or so he thought. And can I assume, given how you started the story, that their destination was Kingston? Yes, it was. When they at last arrived in Kingston, the clergyman and his wife, who were naturally exhausted and in need of a very long sleep, headed up to their home next to the old Dutch church. It was early morning, and the couple could just make out the steeple, which usually is always a welcoming sight. It was the heart of the community. But this morning, something did not seem quite right. The steeple had been disturbed. The clergyman had to figure out why. Despite his exhaustion, he raced inside the church, climbed to its bell tower, and very carefully climbed to the base of the steeple. And what did he see? It was the Dutch sugarloaf cap of the hobgoblin, violently impaled upon the church steeple with such force as to almost rip it in two. No man could have done this. The clergyman, in his haste and fear back on the ship, had not banished the goblin to hell. He had, in fact, banished the goblin to his church. And so it was that the goblin of Dunderberg Mountain then became forever sentenced within the walls of the old Dutch church of Kingston. And by all accounts which I have read, the hobgoblin remains there to this day. Okay, but Greg, something is a little off here because Mm -hmm. didn't you say that in 1852 the church was rebuilt? You're right, yes. That older church where all this took place was severely damaged in the year 1840 by a freak lightning storm. To quote from the diary of one parishioner, quote, about a half hour past 12, a shower arose with heavy thunder and lightning which struck the Dutch church in the steeple, made a large hole, shattered the middle west door and windows and glass all to pieces. 
the ceiling fell where it passed along upon the pulpit and broke one of the astral lamps standing upon it. If the congregation had been in the church, a great many lives must inevitably have been lost by the stroke of the lightning. So a new church was built in 1852, designed by architect Menard Lefevre, famed for many of the most prominent churches Mm -hmm. down in the city of Brooklyn. Uh, This new Dutch church was acclaimed during its day, with even Calvert Vox himself, the designer of Central Park, even he chimed in and called it ideally perfect. There's Calvert Vox again, <laughs> yeah. just getting him into the show somehow, Greg. I wasn't expecting to to hear him pop up in a ghost story, though. Oh, well, believe it or not, Calvert Vox is actually buried in Kingston, New York. No. Um, at another cemetery, at Montrepost Cemetery. But anyway, yes, now there was a new church building. And perhaps the residents of Kingston would have finally been rid of this monstrous uninvited guest, if not for one particular unfortunate incident. As legend has it, shortly after the completion of the new church, a painter was hired to refresh the church, in particular up at its steeple and upon the upper floors. Routine work in a normal situation. Well, as he lowered himself with a pulley to work on those upper floors, he suddenly saw a terrible face on the other side of the glass. At first he thought it was a distorted reflection of his own face, but as he covered his mouth in horror, the face on the other side of the glass simply laughed back. In horror, the man screamed and immediately died of fright. His lifeless body fell to the ground. It was in this way that the hobgoblin transferred to the new building. And unfortunately for the painter, whose life was taken away in such a horrible manner, he too now haunts the church. To quote from author James W. Werner, There have been various sightings from citizens of a flash of lightning revealing the figure of a spectral painter high up on the steeple and hard at work. Now, despite all these scary tales, I urge everyone listening to pay a visit to Kingston and the old Dutch church to see for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) You know how to sell it. Quite up by now, but quite honestly, like I love this place. It's one of the most interesting historic sites along the Hudson River today. And the town itself is a history lesson that also happens to be a pretty marvelous place to hang out, if you ask me. And I, I'm I'm sure that these hauntings have pretty much gone away now, right? Please tell me yes. Well, from time to time, something unexplained happens. According to Werner's report from his website on the Old Dutch Church, quote, During Sunday services, parishioners with heads bowed in reverence have been accused of snoring, when in fact it was simply the moans of the hobgoblin. (laughs) (laughs) At least that's a good excuse. (laughs) Yes. Um, But seriously, in the 1980s, there was another significant occurrence. Another painter was working on the building. There, there have been many painters, you know, since the 1850s. So we're in the clear, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> people are back to painting the building without fear. Or so this man thought. 
As he was working upon the scaffolding along the Wall Street side, he was tapped three times on the shoulder. And each time he turned around, but there was nobody there. But he paused and he looked up at the steeple and at the old church clock beneath it. And he saw something etched upon the clock face. Taking a look, he noticed that the number 12 in Roman numerals, you know, an X and two I's, had been manipulated. It now read one X and three I's, the number 13. Well, obviously then something had damaged the clock, right? Maybe the wind had blown something against the clock and happened to change it to the devil's number, 13. We'll never know. But to this day, on stormy nights, the residents of Kingston know to steer clear of the old churchyard with its ancient tombstones, the monument to George Clinton standing watch. But to those who do venture close, on an evening when the lightning streaks overhead, do not be surprised to see a figure at the top of the steeple forever calling forth the thunder to summon his minions and to rescue him from his eternal captivity in Kingston's old Dutch church. Well, thank you very much for listening to this year's annual Bowery Boys Ghost Story Podcast. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for links to many of the things that we discussed, as well as a few images of some of the places that we visited, including some of my many images of my recent visit to Kingston. A huge thank you to our patrons who have joined us on patreon.com slash boys because of you. Uh, Greg and I are able to devote all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys podcast. A special thanks to patrons Michelle G. from Manhattan, Adrian S. from Westchester, and additional patrons John O., Matt D., Marissa L., Ari L., William N., Marilyn W., and Kate O.D.C., Thank you all for supporting the Bowery Boys podcast. Oh, and Hob G. Oblin <laughs> from Kingston. He um, knew to join us on patreon.com <laughs> slash Bowery Boys. Today's show was recorded by Casey Holford at the Stitcher Studios in New York. Thanks so much for joining, and we wish you the spookiest and happiest of Halloweens. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.